God bless you. God bless you. It's a really common phrase. I want a little audience participation to start off this morning. When's the most common time that you hear someone say, God bless you? Sneezing. Good. All right. Now, what are some other places where you might run across the phrase, God bless you? Keep going. Hallmark cards. Okay, yes. We have God bless you. If you're going somewhere, someone might say, God bless you. And instead of, uh, instead of saying goodbye, you might say, God bless you. Uh, you might see it sometimes on uh, email signatures. Someone might, instead of saying, you know, sincerely or yours truly, might say, God bless. Uh, it's kind of a Christian way of saying goodbye or sincerely. Uh, you can see it on coffee cups. You can see it on inspirational posters, figurines. Uh, God bless you shows up all over the place. I did some research this week, some intensive Google research. Uh, did an image search for the phrase, God bless you. And the, the results that came back as I looked for God bless you uh, were very similar. A lot of these things were pictures that had pastel colors, uh, soft focus, and one or more of the following items. Teddy bears, little kids, butterflies, or flowers. This is what comes up when we, when we search for God bless you, which shows us this is a little bit of what we think about that phrase, about God bless you. We think it's benign. It's a harmless thing. It's in the same category as teddy bears and butterflies. To say God bless you is a safe platitude. It's good for embroidering on baby blankets, or if you want to move some product at a Christian bookstore, just slap God bless you on it and people are going to buy that. But there's little else that it's really good for. It's become so common, it's meaningless, it's harmless, it's benign. Um, Because of this, I actually had a few qualms this week of putting God bless you on our church sign. And if you've been here for a while, you know I put a lot of weird stuff on our church sign. Uh, But I felt weird this time actually putting God bless you on there because that phrase has become so benign. I thought, what are are people going to think now? Like that that we're turning into some sort of Hallmark card church? Like come this Sunday and I'll give you a free Precious Moments figurine? Because just God bless you, that's what we... We wish for you, just God bless you. Um, but God bless you is, is more than just something that goes on greeting cards. It, it's more than just uh, something that we say as a knee-jerk reaction to a sneeze. God bless you is serious business. We're going to end the book of Hebrews today. And at the end of the book of Hebrews, like many other New Testament books, there's a little block at the very end that's the equivalent of the author saying, God bless you. Uh, These endings are sometimes called benedictions, and they're a way of wrapping up the main idea of the whole book and sending the listeners out full of power and support from God, motivating them, propelling them out into the world. Um, They're the biblical way of saying, God bless you, which is why I often like to end our services together by reading for you one of these benedictions and sending you out with the power and blessing of God. Uh, the benediction of Hebrews is found in Hebrews 13, 20 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there, and you can follow along as I read it. So if you find Hebrews, it's the very end of the book, the last few verses. Hebrews 13, verse 20 through 25. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. 
Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. These few verses here at the end, especially verses 20 and 21, are the way that the author of Hebrews says, God bless you. And all I want to do this morning is unpack these verses, this blessing, to try to reclaim for us a little bit the power of that phrase, the power of the blessing of God. I want to do it by asking four questions. Who blesses? Why does he bless? What is the blessing? And how do we receive it? Who blesses? Why does he bless? What is the blessing? And how do we receive it? First of all, easy one. Start off easy. Who blesses us? This is pretty obvious, but we're talking about a blessing from God. God is the one who blesses. Uh, The sentence structure here is, is a little complicated, but if you just start in verse 20, it says, Now may the God of peace, and then skip to verse 21, equip you. That's the meat of the blessing. May the God of peace equip you. So the blessing is coming from God. He's the one doing the blessing. Uh, which, which God? Well, he gives us a little bit of an explanation here. He says he's the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. It's the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Why would he throw that in there? Why do we need to know that happened? It's because a blessing is only as good as the power of the person who's blessing you. Uh, there's a reason why when someone sneezes, we say, God bless you and not Dan bless you. I don't have heard that one. I, I don't hope it catches on. I just... Because Dan's never raised anybody from the dead. Right? Neither is Bill or Bob or Fred. We, we don't say any of those things because it, God is the one who has the power to bless. I have no power to bless. It doesn't mean anything for me to give you my blessing, but for God to give you his blessing. He's the God who created the universe, the God who sustains everything by the power of his word, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. He's got power over life, power over death. If God blesses you, that is a blessing indeed. So as we look at this blessing of God, we should brace ourselves. This is going to be a big blessing. It's a blessing that comes from God. We'll see what that blessing is in the third question, but first we need to say, why would God bless us? Why would the God who raised Jesus from the dead care about me to give me a blessing? Verse 20 says, God is doing what he's doing by the blood of the eternal covenant. You see that phrase there in verse 20? By the blood of the eternal covenant. This phrase here, it's a key phrase, and and because it comes at the end of the book, it's meant to remind us of huge themes that we've covered in this entire book so far. He's saying God is blessing us by the blood of the eternal covenant. He's blessing you because of the finished work of Jesus. That's the only reason why God would bless me. The only reason why God would bless you is because of the finished work of Jesus dying on the cross in our place. We were enemies of God. We were alienated from him. But now through Jesus, we have access to God's blessing. Let's let's look at a few verses earlier in Hebrews just to remind you of what's already been said about this blood. Hebrews chapter 9, flip back a few pages. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. 9, 24. Remember, Remember this? Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. 
But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Remember those verses? Remember that truth? Right, that the Old Testament system that was set up by God was designed to show its, uh, its limitations. It was designed such that every year the, the sacrifice would have to keep being offered over and over, the priest coming over and over to offer sacrifices for sins because the blood of animals could never take away sin. But when Jesus came, he died once for all. Verse 26, this finished work. He appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's no need for more sacrifices every day to try to re-earn God's favor. The work is finished, it's done. Or Hebrews 10, 11 through 18, remember these. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do you hear the finishedness of this? The completeness of the work of Jesus. One sacrifice for all. Sins forgiven, remembered no more. No more offerings for sin needed because Jesus has made them all. This is the reason why we can receive God's blessing. And it's a huge blessing in its own right. That Jesus has made a way for us to be right with God. We've been transferred from being God's enemies to being his children. We've been moved from being under his curse to being under his blessing. And it's a free gift that's given to us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. The blessing is ours because of the blood of the eternal covenant. I want to sit on this for a little bit because it's really easy for us to believe that God's blessing has to depend on something that we've done. We, we just, we think that way. Maybe we've watched Sound of Music too many times. You remember that part where Julie Andrews falls in love with Captain Von Trapp and they're dancing and they're having a great time and, and everything's good and they're singing somewhere in my youth or childhood. I must have done something good. For something this good to happen, I must have done something good. I don't know what I did to earn this, what I did to deserve this, but if life is turning out this well for me, I must have done something because blessing doesn't come out of nowhere. We think that way. If, if I do well now, then God will bless me. If I do poorly now, then God will not bless me. We think that the blessing depends on our performance. But it doesn't. God blesses you because of the finished work of Jesus. One of my favorite stories about this, is, and I've probably shared it before, but is an author named Jerry Bridges. He was scheduled to speak at a church one Sunday. Um, he was flying out there, and he showed up just a few minutes before the service was about to start. 
And, and as he was getting prepared for the service, someone told him about a tragic death that had just happened in the congregation the day before. And he looked at his notes and he realized, this message that I'm speaking today, this is not what the people need. This is not appropriate. And so he realized, I've got about 10 minutes to come up with a new sermon to give to these people who just lost someone in their midst in a tragic death. And, and so he began to pray and ask for God's blessing. But as he did that, he began to think, man, do I even deserve God's blessing? He was thinking, okay, I'm, this, is, this is a big thing I'm asking God for. Did I do a quiet time today? Oh, then there's that, there was that woman on the airplane that I looked at. It's a little too long. How long has it been since I shared my faith? And he started to kind of freak out. Like, I, I, I don't know if I'm in a place right now where I can expect God to bless me because I haven't been a good person recently. And then he remembered the gospel. And he realized the whole gospel is that we don't deserve God's blessing. We never deserve God's blessing. The whole reason any of us get blessing from God at all is because of Jesus Christ. And when Jerry remembered that, he was able to calm down, realize it wasn't up to him and his performance, that God's blessing was by grace. And so he asked for that grace. He relaxed. And God blessed him with a sermon that he was able to share with those people. Now, I share that story with you because that's me. It's probably you too, a little bit. That's me. I mean, when I think about God's blessing, I think of it as a conditional thing that comes to me based on my performance. Have I been good enough this week? Have I done enough things that I would deserve God to bless me? And if not, then I don't expect it. But the truth of the matter is this, that the reason we receive blessing from God is the finished work of Jesus. That's the whole story. God doesn't bless us because of our performance. He doesn't bless us because we've been good. He blesses us because Jesus has been good. And that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. So God is coming to bless us. He's coming with a big blessing, and we can expect that blessing because of Jesus, not because we've done anything good, but because Jesus has done everything good. So what then is the blessing? Let's look at these verses again at the end of Hebrews. We've seen that God blesses us with grace through Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give us forgiveness of sins. He also gives us the ability to change. And this is really the heart of the blessing here, that we now get to live in obedience to God. Look at verses 20 and 21 again. You'll see there's two parts to this blessing. In verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That's the first part of the blessing. Verse 21, he's praying that God would equip them. So the first thing God does is he equips us to do his will. The prayer is, may God bless you by equipping you to do his will. Praying that God would give us what we need, give us the tools that we need, so that now we can actually go out and live a better life. That's the blessing he's asking for. This word that's translated equip in verse 21 uh, is used in, in a couple different contexts in Greek, and it really helps us understand it. Uh, one of them is it talks about soldiers. So the word equip is used to describe soldiers, uh, getting a soldier ready for battle. So to equip a soldier is to give him the tools that he needs to go out and fight the battle. Say, uh, here's your sword, here's your shield, now you're ready to go. So in using this word, uh, the prayer is that we would be like soldiers, and, and God doesn't just say to us, okay, now go out and fight. He says, first of all, Here's your sword, here's your shield. I'm giving you the tools that you need to go out and fight. 
It's also used of fishermen. This word is used of fishermen. In, in their context, it's used to describe the mending of nets. So for a fisherman to be equipped is to have nets that are mended. So in using this word about us, it's God saying, I want you to go out and fish. But he doesn't just say, go fish. He says, I recognize that your nets have holes, that your nets are messed up. I'm going to fix your nets. I'm going to fill the holes. I'm going to equip you to do what I call you to do. It's also used of doctors to describe the mending of a broken bone. For a doctor to equip you is he's going to set your bone and fix your broken leg. And so the picture is of us being sent out by God. But he doesn't just say, hey, your leg's broken, now go out and walk. God says, I see your leg's broken. I'm going to fix your broken leg. And then I'm going to send you out and walk. See, the picture here is that God has saved us to do good. God has saved us and he wants us to follow him. He wants us to obey him. But he doesn't just kick us in the butt and say, all right, now go do it. He sees that we've got broken legs. He sees our nets have holes, that we've got no weapons. And he says, I'm going to give you what you need to go out and do what I'm calling you to do. A big part of this blessing is the grace of God coming into our lives to equip us that we can do his will. But his grace even goes beyond this. In addition to God equipping us to do his will, God also works in us to do his will. It's the next part of verse 21. So first he says, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And then he says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Not only God is giving us the tools to do what he wants, but he's also working in us that we would do what he wants. He's not just saying there's a battle out there. Here's your sword. Here's your shield. Go fight the enemy. He says, here's your sword. Here's your shield. I'm going to go with you. And you're out there and you have no idea what you're doing. And he grabs your sword arm and he swings it to kill. And he's like, there's a guy coming. He puts up your shield for you to block the blow. He's out there with you, working in you, not just giving you the tools, not just telling you what to do, but actually working in you to do it. That's the blessing. To be blessed by God means he saves you by grace. Then he equips you by grace so you're able to do his will. And then he works in you by grace so that you actually do what's pleasing in his sight. God does it all. God does it all. We have this, uh, this ideal in America of the self-made man. Somebody like Cornelius Vanderbilt. He was born in 1794. He was one of nine children born to poor farmers in New York. Cornelius hated school, but he loved the water. And at one point in his life, as, as a child, he managed to score a boat. And he, he took to this boat, and he started ferrying people across from Staten Island in New York City. And he, and he worked hard, and he was dedicated. He was always ferrying people on the boats, and he bought more boats, and, and he kept building his empire, and he turned it into a worldwide shipping empire, and then parlayed that into the railroads. And by the time he died, this little one of nine children born to poor farmers was worth, in today's dollars, $185 billion. That would make him the third richest person to ever live. All right, and we love those stories in America. Those stories of the self-made man, somebody who through sheer hard work and determination pulled himself up by his bootstraps and made something of himself, the self-made man. Okay, but there's no such thing as a self-made Christian. It's just, there's just no such thing. It's not a category. There's no such thing as a person who by sheer hard work and determination pulls himself up by his moral bootstraps and manages to turn into a good person. 
God doesn't expect that of us, and it can't be done. The truth is, everything is by grace. God saves you by grace. Then he comes in and he equips you by grace. And then he comes in and he works in you by grace so that you will do what is pleasing to him. This is the blessing that is being prayed for you and for me at the end of this book. May God, who raised Jesus from the dead, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Let's talk about how this works. How do we receive this blessing? How does God actually do this? When we talk about being equipped and getting the sword and the shield and God working in us, what does that mean? We've already told us this stuff throughout the book of Hebrews, so I'm going to give us a little review, jumping back to some key passages. We receive this blessing first and foremost through the Holy Spirit of God. We get God's equipping and empowering blessing, first of all, through the Holy Spirit of God. Flip to Hebrews 8. In Hebrews 8, there's a wonderful passage that speaks of the new covenant. It explains what happens when you become a Christian. Hebrews 8.10 is the key verse I want you to see right now. Hebrews 8.10 is God's explaining what happens when you become a Christian. He says this, For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the key thing that happens here when you become a Christian is that God takes his law and he writes it on your heart. Before you were a Christian, you probably knew some of the commands of God. You probably knew things that you should do and you shouldn't do. But all they were to you were external commands, things that were written down somewhere. Someone told you these things and you knew you should do them or you shouldn't do them, but they didn't have any hold on your heart. They weren't internal. They weren't things that you understood were right and wrong that you wanted to do or had the power to do. They were just things written on a a tablet or on a a piece of stone or on a poster on the wall and and you, you couldn't do them. He says, what happens when when you become a Christian is that God moves into your life. The Holy Spirit of God comes into your life. He changes your heart, removing a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, a heart that can keep his commands, a heart that has the commands of God written on them so that now you can obey. One of the most dramatic examples I know of this is a friend of mine named Mark who was an alcoholic full-blown alcoholic and he was ruining his life ruining his family and he wanted to stop he knew it was wrong but he couldn't he knew he was destroying his family he knew he was destroying his life and it was the wrong thing to do he couldn't stop but then one day someone came into his life shared the gospel with him and mark believed in jesus and in that moment the holy spirit moved into his life transformed his heart took the law of commands that said don't get drunk and put it on his heart. Such that in that instant, and this was miraculous, in that instant, Mark lost the desire to drink completely. And he was transformed. And it's been like 40 years, and he's still sober and still clean. And he said it was a miracle. God just took it away. In that instant, completely transformed. Because the Holy Spirit came into his life and changed him. That's a picture 
of the blessing of God. The law that used to be on the outside now becomes inside. Now Mark would be the first one to tell you it doesn't happen that way for everybody exactly like that. Okay? It's not always the case, even with alcoholics, that the moment that you believe, God takes away the desire to drink. It's not always, it, God does do that sometimes, not always. He does do that sometimes for whatever sin you might be facing, just it's gone, but a lot of the time, God works more gradually than that. Sometimes it looks like this, where God just comes into your life and he gives you a new conviction that what you were doing is wrong. The Holy Spirit works by telling you, even though you still do it, and when you do it, you feel the conviction. So it may be that uh, you, know, you become a Christian and uh, a little while later you're out with your old friends that you've hung out with for years. And you're talking to your friends and the conversation goes where it always does. You start making fun of your neighbors, gossiping about your husbands or wives. Um, and formally, this was like your favorite thing to do. This is how you'd pass the time. Uh, you were quite good at it. You were funny. You, were, you, you got a lot of enjoyment out of you know, making fun of your neighbors, about sharing the latest juicy gossip, of tearing other people down. You never had any problem with it before. But this time, you start going down that way and you realize this is wrong. This just doesn't feel right. I, I know a week ago I, I was leading this, but, but today I just something's different, something's changed. What's changed? What's changed is that God has moved into your life and he's in you, equipping you and working in you to do what is pleasing in his sight. And the way he does that is through his Holy Spirit convicting you of that sin so that now you say, I don't want to do that anymore. And gradually you change. Okay? It happens with gossip. It could happen with, you know, formerly you watched a certain show and you had no problem with it whatsoever and then you became a Christian and without anybody even telling you, you see it and you realize, this is not what I need to be watching. Or you used to blow up in anger all the time and never feel like you had to apologize to anyone. But now, after you blow up again, there's this conviction in your heart. It says, I've got to make this right. I need to humble myself. I need to ask for forgiveness. Where did that come from? That didn't come from you pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps because you're some sort of awesome, self-made Christian. That conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. It's God working in you to do what's pleasing in His sight. God equips us. He works in us through His Holy Spirit, writing His law in our hearts. He also does this through the Word of God. Flip back a few more pages to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This passage speaks to one of the major problems that we have as humans. One of our major problems is that we don't know what our problems are. We're just really bad at self-diagnosis. Uh, we're, we're great at self-deception. 
We're great at saying everything's fine, of convincing others, even ourselves, that everything is fine. But there's something wrong with us. So we're, we're like a person walking around with intense abdominal pain. And we're just like, well, that must be how everybody feels. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. No problem. But the word of God is like a skillful surgeon who comes in like a scalpel, cuts to the heart of the issue, and exposes our sin then, and cuts it out. You know, we're, we're, we're great at hiding our sin from others, from ourselves, but the word of God exposes our sin and says, you've got to deal with this. And that's how God works in us, equipping us, empowering us. It's through the word of God. I had a humbling and fresh experience of this in my own life this week. On Wednesday morning, I woke up and I was just stressed, anxious. I felt like I had a lot to do. And uh, just instantly, you ever wake up like that and just before your feet even hit the ground, you just get hit with today is not going to be a good day. Uh, I'm pretty familiar with that feeling. And normally what I would do in that situation is I would use that stress and that anxiety to propel me to get working really fast, to work really hard and to get as much done as I possibly can. And so what that usually looks like is, well, if I can, uh, well, sometimes I read my Bible in the morning, so I'll just, I'll skip that. That's not necessary. Um, I, you know, I don't have time for big breakfast, just quick breakfast, get out. You know, I just need to get to work as soon as possible and start doing something so I feel better about myself because I just feel like I'm a horrible person because I haven't been doing what I need to do. By God's grace, on Wednesday morning, I resisted my normal uh, pattern and I took time to read the next chapter in my Bible reading, which was Psalm 15. And uh, contrary to where you might think this is going, when I read Psalm 15, I felt worse. So it's short. I'll read it for you. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So he's saying, who, who can be with God? Who is good enough to be with God? It says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. So this made me feel worse, because where I was at when I read it was I was already condemning myself. I was already feeling like I wasn't good enough. Like if I had just been a harder worker on Monday and Tuesday, and if I was just smarter, if I just did better, then I wouldn't be in this situation. So I was already feeling like a failure. And then I read these verses and say, who can dwell with God? A perfect person. Who, who has the right to be with God? Someone who's blameless, who, who never slanders, who never uh, reviles another, who, you know, who, who honors God and honors people who honor God. And, and I read that and I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's so not me. But that's not me. So, so now I'm freaking out. In addition to feeling like I have a lot of work I need to get done, I'm feeling like I am not even acceptable before God. But you know what that did? The Word of God exposed my real sin. The Word of God exposed my real sin. See, I, I was thinking my problem is that I didn't work hard enough. I didn't do enough. My real sin was I was thinking, if I only perform, then God will love me. If I'm only getting my work done, then I'll be accepted. And I looked in the perfect mirror of the word of God and he says, you know what? You can never do enough. You can knock out all your work and go down the, church, the road to another church and do all their work too and, and, and you still wouldn't be good enough. Who can stand before God? Who can stand on his holy hill? You know who can stand before God? Jesus. Jesus can stand before God. 
And I can stand before God because of Jesus. Not because I get my work done, not because I'm such a good person, but because Jesus is a good person. He opened up the word of God that morning, forced me to face my sin, to go back to the gospel, and that gospel liberated me to live that day, to, to, to actually go out on that Wednesday relatively relaxed and confident and productive because the word of God was working in me. Now, the point I want you to take from that is, I mean, I am not the hero of that story, right? The point of that is not, oh, look at Dan reading his Bible, isn't that so great? The point of that story is I'm neurotic and insecure, okay? I'm not a hero. The hero was Jesus, right? The hero is God. And, and, and in my weakness, turning to Scripture and saying, Lord, would you work in me today? Would you equip me today to do your will? And he did. That's what it means to be blessed by God, that he comes in and saves us by grace. And then he says, you're not on your own. I'm going to help you. And the word of God is one of the major ways in which he does that. The third way, and there's probably more, but the, the third big way that we get this blessing from God is through the people of God. The people of God. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, And let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is an encouragement that that tells us even from the first century when this letter was written, right after Jesus lived, even from the first century, there were some people who were convinced that they didn't need other Christians to walk and live the Christian life. Uh, Folks who thought, I can be fine on my own. I don't need to meet together. Verse 25 says, it's the habit of some. So from the very beginning, there have been Christians who said, I don't need the church. I don't need other Christians to help me. But the book of Hebrews and the New Testament strongly disagrees with that idea. Uh, Consistently throughout the Bible, the local church is the means by which God blesses his people. We get the idea sometimes when we say, God bless you, like it's a direct line from God to you. Like, may God bless you in some sort of way. God just showering blessing on you, and and you just receive that direct from him as if no one else is involved. But most of the time, when God blesses you, he blesses you through his people. Right? God blesses you when someone serves you by teaching your kids about Jesus. That's a blessing from God coming through his people. God blesses you when someone uses their musical gifts to praise the Lord and that stirs your heart to worship. God blesses you when someone visits you in the hospital. God blesses you when your friend holds you accountable to change destructive behavior. God blesses you through the work of other people. Through his people. He saves us by grace. And then he equips each of us by grace. And empowers each of us by grace to bless one another. That's how the whole thing works. God uses his church, his people, to bless his people. So on the one hand, don't miss out from God's blessings. 
by isolating yourself from the local church. And I'm not just talking about coming on Sunday mornings. I'm talking about sharing your life with the people that are part of this church family. Don't isolate yourself from God's blessings by isolating yourself from the people. God's blessings don't just come from him direct to you. They come through his people. So you need to be with them, sharing life with them, interacting with them. And on the other hand, don't deny us God's blessings by refusing to use your gifts to serve us. You know, we all have a responsibility. We're here, and and as we live and serve with one another, we are blessed by one another, and we bless one another. So don't cut yourself off from God's blessings by isolating yourself from God's people. And don't cut us off from God's blessings by isolating yourself and your gifts from us. God uses his people to bless his people. Now, the point of this sermon, I have a, I have a fear. I have a fear that, that one of the things you're going to take away from this sermon is that somebody's going to sneeze, and you're going to say, God bless you, and then you're going to turn to me and apologize and say, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor. I know we're not supposed to say God bless you when somebody sneezes. Okay, that's not the, say that, fine. I don't care. This is not about sneezes, right? The point of this sermon is that God bless you is bigger than that. That God bless you is significant, it's, it's serious, and it's so good. It, it means that God, in his universe-creating resurrection power, by the finished work of Jesus, is desiring to bless you. He wants to actively work in you, equipping you and empowering you through his spirit, through his word, and through his people to live for him, to actively do his will. The entire Christian life is from grace, from the beginning to the end. And so I want to leave you today, wrapping up the book of Hebrews, the way the author himself ends it. Hebrews 13, 25. Grace be with you all. Let's pray.